suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 12th of March, 2019. I am Trevor, your host, the Iron Fist, with me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. And also, Paul the 12th Man. Hi, everyone. How are you going? And to celebrate International Women's Day, what what better way than to bring in another white, privileged, heterosexual, cisgendered male in the form of Hugh Harris. Welcome aboard, Hugh Harris. Good to be here. Thank you for that weird uh, introduction. Representing the, the female voice for us this week. Okay, I'll do my best. Oh, ladies out there, if you, if you live near the Gap area and you want to join us on a Tuesday night, maybe Alison or... Uh, uh, Kathy or somebody like that might want to join the panel. By all means, reach out and you'll be welcome. And um, but really, he's the only person who asked to come on, so that's why he's here. Dear listener, if you've stumbled onto this podcast, congratulations! Uh, it's an Australian podcast, award-winning, no less. We talk about news and politics and things going on in the world, and we try to give some insightful analysis of what's happening and what should be happening, and maybe offer the odd solution or two. And have some fun along the way. So, uh, first off, we're going to talk about religious matters and politics. Uh, Probably not much sex on this one until a bit later when we get to another consecrated virgin. But until then, (laughs) it's just going to be politics and religion. And Hugh, you um, proposed on your Facebook page, and you know, in the lead up to this podcast, you said, "Well, the Cardinal Pell decision, you know, and what's happened there." Is it going to? Is there any change? Does it going to mean anything? And I think the first item we're going to talk about um, illustrates that in fact nothing will change. And that is that uh, Julie Bishop has announced that she's not um, running again in the next Parliament. So a big fight over her safe seat uh, in Western Australia, and it's. It's come out that they've pre-selected a lady called Celia Hammond. And, of course, dear listener, you're asking, well, who is Celia Hammond? Um, walking into one of the safest seats into the country. And the bad news is that she spent 21 years at Fremantle's Catholic University of Notre Dame, where she served as a vice-chancellor. And she's a red-hot Catholic with all of the... Uh, baggage that comes with that, it seems to me. So in an email to staff at the university at one stage, she was worried about same-sex marriage campus groups and said that they compromised the university's Catholic identity and mission. And um, she says she doesn't identify as a feminist. In a speech from 2013, she said that's because, according to her, the feminist movement had become pro-abortion, anti-men, anti-tradition and anti-family. Sounding very Tony Abbott-ish in that regard. And if that wasn't enough, she takes a dim view of premarital casual sex. 
there you go. It didn't take us long to talk about sex. We got to it. <laughs> <laughs> She's, this is a quote apparently from her which says, I've never known a single woman who has been able to have a premarital, casual sexual encounter or that sort of relationship who hasn't actually, whether they knew it or acknowledged it at the time, been searching for something more. Ooh. What they're being sold is a pup. A pup? A pup. Premarital sex is a pup, you oh, Harris. Okay. Gentlemen, so there you go. After a terrible time for the Catholic Church, a, a royal commission, they're just riddled with, with pedophiles. We've got the head of the church who's been convicted. There are, you know, all sorts of things against them. And the powerful forces in our country have just um, propped a God-fearing Catholic into our uh, one of our safest seats. Uh, nothing will change. Well, it wasn't the powerful forces. It was the... Pre-selection mob over there. There were 94 mm. Liberals who actually cast their vote. Yeah, I think she got 60 of the votes or something like that. She did win quite a quite a sizable majority of those votes. However, it does concern me, those quotes that you just said. You know, clearly she's, you know. How, how old is she? She sounds like a bit of an old mum. Look, I saw the photo of her and she just didn't look like a 60-year-old, put it that way. Yeah. Right. So, okay. um, she's I, clearly I not of the Woodstock generation. No, she looked like she's, she's about 50. She's had 21 years at Fremantle Catholic University of Notre Dame, so yes. I'd put her somewhere around 50, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bizarre. On a very good salary too. Yeah. And she's giving that up for, what, a piddling $200,000 as a backbencher. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of the problems that it seems conservatism has brought the Liberal Party, they're just doubling down and, and more of it. Well, the Liberals have left now or are leaving, so mm. that, it sort of makes sense that the Conservatives are going to be pre-selecting each other. Do you think Julie Bishop perhaps is, is having the last laugh on the Liberal Party? She had nothing to do with it. She wanted somebody else. Did she? Yeah. So it just shows she's got no power. She mm. tried to get a more moderate person pre-selected. So, so the WA Liberal Party is absolutely controlled by Christians now. Yeah, and Matthias Corbyn was largely responsible for that. Oh, is he a Christian? Yes. He is. Yeah. Hmm. Christian of some sort. So, some sort of Protestant, I believe. Look, we could look it up on the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index. Are you familiar with the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index, Hugh Harris? I have to admit that I am not. Really? So on our this website... This is your lucky day, Hugh. Yeah, I probably have read it at yeah. one point. Um, on our website is a link to the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index. And basically we've listed all of the federal politicians and to the best of our knowledge, what their religion is, and we've given them a ranking on a secularity score. I have read that, yes. There we go. Matthias Corman, he gets a score of three, and we've put him down as a Christian. Uh, a conservative Catholic, he's pu- he pushed for special religious privileges as part of Marriage Act amendments. Mm-hmm. So if you're worrying about the – or if, if you're interested, dear listener, in the religiosity of any member of the federal parliament – Check it out, and if you can add to our database, please do. So, was our beer sponsor has been working on that? Good on you, was. So, mm. so well, Hugh, you asked the question, and people responded on your Facebook page. I assume what was the consensus? Does the George Pell conviction mean anything of significance? Well, I'm interested <clears throat> in what you guys think. I know what Trevor. I know what you think. I think it does mean something very significant, and I think when you see people like. Christina Keneally and 
people from the church coming out and saying that they're now doubting their faith, it emphasises for me the kind of dichotomy that is that exists for people with faith, that they have faith in one, context, in one context, they say they've got faith. However, it's a little bit like us when we're, when, when we're in our everyday job and we have faith in the mission and everything about the company in that context. But perhaps outside of that context, when we're away on holidays or when we go to another job, we don't necessarily have the same level of faith. And I think that's that's something that it emphasises for people who maintain their belief in Catholicism, that to what extent do they actually genuinely believe? And I don't think they do. And when you look at the church hierarchy, and this was the point I tried to make in my um, my piece on the matter, was that it highlights that people don't genuinely believe. They believe in the same sort of work sense that something about Catholicism is true and they identify with it as what they grew up with and what their peer group is. They think that that's right. They think that that's the team that they're on. But when it comes down to it, you can't, pro- you can't protect um, child abusers. You can't swap pedophiles from one church to another. You can't actually, you know, as George Pell was convicted of, you can't abuse children and think that you're doing Jesus' work. You can't do, you can't, you can, you can compartmentalise it and on one day you can believe that you are, but on another day you definitely wouldn't believe that you are. So it, it means to me that faith is no longer genuine. You can't, you can't look at anyone in the Catholic Church hierarchy and think that their faith is actually genuine and I think that's the problem for most believers and that's a question that they've got to grapple with now. So I don't think it's going to have instant political ramifications. I don't think it's going to affect pre-selections. I think it's still going to be, they're still going to be like a political party but I think people espousing the genuineness of their faith are going to be questioned much more often as we go forth. All right, two things. You start off with Christina Keneally and the fact that she's now questioning her faith yeah. as a consequence of of the George Pell decision as being an, an indicator of she's, change. She's been wringing her hands for the last four years, Hugh. Like, well, true. So she has, she has, but she was particularly vociferous about it after the George Pell verdict. I'm not saying the okay. verdict is or, or, a or, game right. changer. And let me play devil's advocate then. Really, these people, their faith is in the, doc, you know, Jesus, God, uh, the doctrine of the of the religion, not necessarily the people who run it. So it's quite possible for people, just playing devil's advocate here, mm. to, for their faith to be as strong as ever in the, in the tenets of the faith and just simply to be disappointed with the people running the, the rock show and saying that uh, not happy with them. So, I mean, but who it really that's what, the, that's what faith is about, is about the doctrine rather than the people, I would have thought. I would have thought too, but my personal belief is I don't think anyone really genuinely believes it or believes it 100% of the time. I think it's I think what this emphasises is and it highlights the fact that that belief is not a genuine 100% conviction because you hear believers talking about when they have their doubts and all of that sort of thing. They all go through those phases. They don't believe it 24/7 and they don't they certainly don't engage in all of the supposedly sinful behaviours, things like masturbation that, you know, virtually everyone does that, you know, except for Paul, 
But but, (laughs) (laughs) who gave me a strange look? I really thought it was going to take a lot longer to get to the topic of sex on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone sins. Everyone does the wrong thing. They they either they either don't genuinely believe it, or they think that they can get into heaven by doing the wrong thing. Well, what do you think? Um, What do you think? Do people stop believing? But what did people say on the Facebook page? Did people do? Do your Facebook followers think anything's changed? I can't recall right, okay. whether there was. I don't think there was a genuine consensus. I but think. Uh, I think your comment at the start set the tone for the rest of it. Oh, really? That they'll probably just walk on from disaster to disaster. But, but would you expect your follow your Facebook followers to be a reliable gauge of something like that? Because I wouldn't expect mine to be. Mm. No, I don't think mm. so either. Mm. Anyway, uh, remains to be seen. He will be sentenced on Wednesday. So we'll see what he gets. And um, the appeal set in June. A couple of months' time, yeah. Mm. Yep. So the other thing that came out was um, news about the Labor opposition and their proposals regarding funding of hospitals. And they were going to tie hospital funding to the provision of abortion services. And when announcing the opposition's new women's health policy on Wednesday, health spokeswoman Catherine King and Deputy Leader Tanya Plibersek said a new funding agreement between a Labor government and the states and territories would expect that termination services will be provided consistently in public hospitals. Mm. And obviously there were murmurings from the Catholic hospitals saying, what does that mean for us? And on Wednesday, Mrs King's office phoned leaders from the Catholic health sector to assure them that a Labor government would not withhold funding from Catholic hospitals refusing to perform terminations on religious grounds. Gentlemen, should Catholic hospitals be forced to provide abortion services? That's the question. I think it should be up to the doctors and nurses involved if they wish to provide terminations inside a government-funded Catholic hospital, they should be allowed to do so. A hospital is a building. It has machines in it that go ping. It is not something that has a religious sensibility. The individuals who work inside that hospital might have a religious sensibility and therefore it comes down to them as to whether or not they are prepared to offer the services. What about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Catholic hospital? I'm not going to dignify it with respect. Hugh Harris? I'd agree exactly with what Scott said. So if it's a Catholic hospital full of Catholic surgeons... Or medical oh, staff. I don't think anyone would accept that premise. Uh, <laughs> thought experiment here. You love thought experiments. <laughs> but surgeons are not hired on the basis of their religion, are they? Well, here's what I'm getting to. Uh, if you've got it, it, if you've it, got it, a if you've got a hospital staff that is 100 percent Catholic that refuses to f- perform abortions, yeah. fine. Well, yeah. well, here's the question right. that Go follows from that: Can the government say to uh, a hospital, say there's just one of them in a, in a remotish location where there's not a lot of opportunity for people, not a lot of choice, Indeed. and it says to them, we noticed you don't provide an abortion service because none of your doctors are prepared to do it. However, we've got Dr Joe Bloggs over here who is prepared to do it and we want you to provide that service and we want you to hire someone like him mm. and provide the service as part of running a hospital in this region. Can the government say that? You're going to hate this. 
if the government funds the hospital or contributes to funding, then the government has a say in what they do. So, yes. Yeah, I tend to agree with him. <laughs> Twelfth man. Well, if, if, if it's the only hospital in the area and, and women need that service, then surely the government should uh, make damn well sure that the service is available to them. Because we, um, we spend a lot of money training doctors. We do. And we spend a lot of money providing the capital for these Indeed. hospitals. I mean, the money for Catholic hospitals, the capital, doesn't all come from the Catholics. Like the, and the as you say, the training, significant the, those amounts. doctors don't come from Australian Catholic University, do they? Uh, so, and well, if they do, it's still subsidised by, uh, by the government. So I don't have any problem for us to say that when you are running a hospital, you are performing a service. You're, you're kind of an outsourcing of a government function. Providing health is a government function. That's right. So, and it's not a religious function after mm, all, is it? Mm. Even though the Catholic Church may own the hospital, mm. they're not providing a religious service. They're providing a health service. Mm. So I don't have a problem saying to a uh, Catholic health system, you must provide an abortion service. Mm. And, of course, individual doctors can say that they don't perform that service because really that's up to a doctor to say, look, I don't do any operations, I don't do um, neurosurgery or whatever. I mean, they're allowed to say what they do and, and, and don't do. They just can't discriminate amongst people. They can't say, well, you know, I'll do a, a knee reconstruction for white people but not for black people. Mm. But you can say, I just don't do knee reconstructions. Mm. That's fine. In the same sense, you can say, I don't do abortions. Mm. But in terms of a, a hospital, we can certainly say to them, you're an outsourcing of a government function, believe it or not, so you're subject to our rules and one of them is this. So that will be interesting to see what happens the, well, what's uh, going to happen is what you've already said before, that the Catholic Church is going to continue to oppose it and that mm. sort of thing and the Labor Party is going to bend over backwards for them. Mm. This is all going to come out as well when it comes to voluntary assisted dying. That's going to be what's really going to come out. Mm. Uh, so there was a 2000, and I hadn't seen much sort of in the media about this, so maybe when you're making your submission, dear listener, to the uh, Queensland Parliamentary Inquiry Committee about it, you can say that as part of it you want um, all hospitals to offer the service. And I went to a talk once at QUT where they mentioned a Canadian case where a guy was rushed to a, uh, a Catholic hospital in Canada and at the time voluntary assisted dying was legal, but the Catholic hospital refused to provide the service. And the difficulty was transferring him because they needed him to sign consent forms to say he wanted, you know, wanted to be euthanized. And so they had to reduce his pain relief medication, which to, to make him lucid enough to say that he wanted this to happen. And that, of course, made it incredibly painful for him then to be transferred by ambulance to another hospital where the service could then be offered to him. So he went through an agonising situation that his family had to witness because of that. The other thing was that in these Catholic hospitals in Canada, what was happening was they were refusing 
to allow assisted dying consent forms to be signed in their premises. So when lawyers rocked up at the reception to say, I'm here for uh, Ian Shearer um, to sign a consent form and we're going to transfer him to another hospital, they would say, we refuse to allow you in. We will not facilitate the signing of that document. So what happens over there, or what was happening, was people were having to um, get dressed up as florists and other other people going in in disguise, shuffling in the paperwork to get it signed in order to get these people out of these Catholic hospitals so that they could then avail themselves of voluntary assisted dying. Hugh Harris, you... Don't look surprised. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I've read the I've read the same thing, but it's just outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, it's outrageous, and uh, you know, it, it's just one of those these things that, as these sort of beliefs get more and more extreme and marginal, mm-hmm. I think it's something like eighty percent of the general public support um, voluntary assisted dying in Catholic hospitals. They they have to give people what's it called when they give them injections to to bring on death that hit that ease the pain the um oh, that um, what was it, it called um when you anesthetise people so much that they yeah that basically their, that their lungs stop working yeah they're, they're, terminal sedation yes terminal, terminal sedation, sedation. That's it. so yeah. that that is super common mm. they do mm. that everywhere mm. the difference between that and voluntary assisted dying. I don't think is a huge gap, mm. but it's just dogma mm. that makes people do these things. And do they do that in Catholic hospitals? They do. They yeah. do. Because it comes down to a doctor having the has mm. the decision that he decides that I'm just going to keep this person yes. on the edge of death and so That's they just right. keep him sedated. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the doctors are probably in favour of it, in favour of voluntary assisted mm. dying. They just want to up the dose. That's all. Mm. So, again, it's similar to the abortion issue. We should be able to say to Catholic hospitals, you're an outsource of a government function, and sure, individual doctors may not want to do it. That's fine. Um, But we've got one over here who will, and you need to offer the service. So you need to employ some people who will do it. Mm. Agree. Right. One less problem. Mm. Yeah. We've solved it. We've solved that. Yeah. (laughs) Tick. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to happen. Well, it's either that or the Catholics can sell their hospitals to the state, you know. And why not? Mm. Just buy buy the hospitals back. Still sort of related to International Women's Day, was the beer sponsor was talking to me about... He's a bit of an arch-feminist, old Walsh. Well, he's he's got... We have disagreements over various things. He loves Jordan Peterson still. uh, Well, not he doesn't love him so much. He's gone a little bit cold on him, but he still likes Pinker. Anyway. I still um, like Pinker. Discussion came around to, do you like Pinker as well? Pink, yeah, Pinker yeah, right. and Peterson. Right. Oh, you, you like Peterson bring, too? Bring it on. Really? You like Peterson as well? No. Well, I wouldn't say I agree with all of Peterson's views, but I think right. he is someone who's an interest, interesting intellectual. Right. Okay. We won't divert to Peterson just at this moment. <laughs> Take too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the topic of why women don't choose um, tech. And, yeah, that was really interesting. Mm, mm. Uh, and to Jordan Peterson's credit, he does um, sort of make this distinction. He makes his point very men well. Men and women are different. Yeah. And they've got different interests. So does Gad Sad. So men and women are yeah. biologically different. Yes. And in some areas, in, in some, some respects. In some ways. Yes. Mm. But 
that doesn't mean they don't have equal rights. But it's just a distinction that it seems that it's very difficult to make nowadays without being held down. It's a good thing that we don't have any, um, that I'm the women's representative tonight. (laughs) 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 Or we could be in a bit of trouble. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, engineering and quotas in organisations and things like that. And in this article, uh, a couple of interesting things. One story is about a lady who... Um, was employed as a technology consultant by a small firm that served the financial industry and she built servers and workstations. And she came to work one Monday morning and joined the guys at the work table and one of them said, what did you do this weekend? She said, I was in the throes of a brief doomed romance. I had attended a concert that Saturday night. I answered the question with an account of both. The guys stared blankly, then silence. Then one of them said... I built a fibre channel network in my basement. <laughs> and our co-workers fell all over themselves asking him to describe every step in loving detail. <laughs> and she said, at that moment I realised that fundamentally these are not my people. I like the work, but I was never going to like it enough to blow a weekend doing, it, doing more of it for free, <laughs> which meant that I was never going to be as good as that job as the guys around me. Mm. So a good anecdotal story. I think that probably paints an accurate picture. So uh, there's references to various articles and, uh, for example, men and women differed by almost a full standard deviation in, in things versus people dimension, whereas men are interested in things and women are interested in people. Yeah. You know. It's you, big, that's not a big shock, is it? No. Um, also, where you had um, people who were both – strong in mathematical aptitude who also had very strong verbal aptitude, then by the time they reach their mid-30s, they are likely to transition to jobs that um, use the verbal and social skills more so than the tech skills. And the comment was that the people most likely to have both strong technical and verbal social skills were women. So they actually have an advantage that if they have the technical skills, they get the sort of life choice at that stage of transitioning to another career, which the, the sort of stereotypical nerdy guy in the basement building a fibre channel connector or whatever can't do. So that was an interesting thought on that. Yeah. And... It's just not fair, is it? Mm, well, it just... Well, it is fair because it's, it's just the way it is. Like it's how we've evolved. I I was actually mildly surprised that on engineering there was a huge discrepancy in favour of men, mm-hmm. but across the board there wasn't that much difference. Women were ver- very equally represented in the legal profession and in other other professions. So um, it wasn't as much of a difference in biological things or things that suggested it was biological than what mm-hmm. I thought. That's very true. See, my old man's an accountant. My other brothers trained as accountants. And when my old man went through as an accountant, he was quite common going to a lecture and had the lecturer say, good evening, gentlemen. Then by the time my brothers went through, there was 20% of the class were women. By the time I went through, it was about 50-50. Yeah, certainly in the legal profession profession now, um, lots of uh, female graduates coming out and... 
um, really in the junior ranks, dominated by females. Mm. Mightn't have percolated through to partner level yet, but certainly... It's only a matter of time, though, isn't it? It's true. You would think. Back to our uh, wonderful uh, government that we've got at the moment, and... It'll be gone before too long. Well... How many we've podcasts got, left until the change of government? We, we've they got to be decimated. We've got a new. Hey, hang on a minute. Maybe it's not so bad. I mean, there's a new defence minister, uh, Senator Linda Reynolds. Yeah. And here she was. I've got a little clip of her uh, interviewed on Sky. Have she a listen to this. She up very badly. <laughs> Do you agree with the sentiment that? Um, that, that flexibility in wages and, and keeping wages at a relatively modest level is a deliberate feature of our economic architecture to actually drive jobs growth? Yeah. No, I don't believe... No, absolutely not. And, you know, for Bill Shorten to even suggest that, I think, is uh, it shows a well, fundamental... I'm actually quoting... Economics. I'm quoting Matthias um, Cormann, the finance minister yes. here, uh, Minister, your colleague. He says that wages flexibility is, quote, a deliberate feature of our economic architecture. Uh, but that, that, he's absolutely right. But again, my point is, though, is for Bill Shorten, if you want wages growth, you need to have a strong economy. And In case you missed that, just let me help you out a bit. No, I don't believe... No, absolutely not. He's absolutely right. No, I don't believe... No, absolutely not. He's absolutely right. No, I don't believe... No, absolutely not. He's absolutely right. Just a bit of a terrible. speech impediment, doesn't she? Just Terrible. She just went all out on for Bill Shorten to say that. And it turned out it was her own cabinet colleague who said it. And she completely turned on her heel without even drawing breath and saying, well, he's, of course, that's right. Because how in what, what an terrible. embarrassment this mob is. Mm-hmm. You know, what she should have said was she should have said, look, that's not my area of expertise. I'm the defence minister, not the um, treasurer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's what she should have said. That's the standard line, isn't it? Exactly. That, I, I can't speak for Matthias Corman. You'll have to ask him. Exactly. Yeah, that's what she should have done. So, um, What an idiot. They are, they are a hopeless joke. Mm-hmm. So well, they really need a good bashing to sort of – help them see the light of day, but I don't think it will help. They're completely delusional, it seems. So, right, Hugh, um, you posted an article. Um, this is by James Boyce. He had previously talked about Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism mm-hmm. and somebody responded saying, kind of, how dare you pick on somebody for their Pentecostalism? And he responded back saying, well, it's a legitimate thing to do. So yes. what, did, what are your thoughts on that? Initially, I thought, because um, Brian Morris from um, the National Secular Lobby had proposed that all politicians should declare what their beliefs are and suggested that journalists should insist on knowing what their beliefs are. When I read that, this is a couple of years ago, I, had, I felt that was slightly unreasonable. But reading this article made me change my mind. And so that's why I, I suggested it and posted it on Facebook because I think it is I think it is critically important that your Prime Minister believes in science, believes in climate change, believes in those things. You can't have someone who's a creationist. Well, you can have, but it, the public are entitled to know. I think that's a crucial thing. I think they're entitled so, so to know. So instead of asking what's your religion, is it what are you a creationist? Is that is that the essential thing or is it I think I think journalists should be making sure that he's made to ask that question. So when uh, I think it was Ray Hadley wanted to ask him those questions, Scott Morrison was irate about it and uh claimed 
claimed that this was sort of victimization of his mm. religious beliefs and he was having his religious freedom challenged. Yeah. But personal religious beliefs are kind of off limits to, yeah. to, to oh, the public I've, and to journalists. I think I've got the clip. Hang on a second. Here we go. Try this. My personal faith, Mr Speaker, in Jesus Christ is not a political agenda. Actually, that was his speech to Parliament. Here's this other bit. Hang on. Um, you get to judge my policies, no, it would but be you don't easy. get to judge my faith, mate. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, why not? And when he, his first speech in Parliament declared himself to be a, a Christian and a, a strong Christian and that, and that those beliefs would guide him. Hmm. In Parliament, he's, everyone's entitled to, and I think we, uh, it's one of those things when you, uh, when you saw Chris, Chris Hitchens in full flight and the new atheism movement when that came across, it, they were considered exceptionally rude for challenging people in their faith and standing up to them, mocking faith, making fun of it. And this is one of the taboos in our society that you can't say anything bad about someone because they're religious or to do with their religious belief. I think that's something we've got to challenge, uh, something I know that and we this, are challenging. this is what this podcast does, yes. I think, and that's that's a good thing that needs to happen more. Absolutely. See, I've never understood that because if you actually have a strong, solid faith basis, you ought to be able to stand up for yourself, shouldn't you? Should be loud and proud. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like in saying that you can't get to question my faith, mate, I mean, that was a load of nonsense. He should have said, yeah, I'll tell you about my faith if you want to. He's being a little bit, uh, you know, defensive, isn't he? He's very mm. He's saying, you know, I'm a strong believer in Jesus Christ, but you have no right to ask me exactly what I believe about Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah. sorry, you can't have it both ways. I think it goes to the point we were talking about before of people not having genuine faith and having faith in one context but not in another. Right. Now that I've turned the phone off. Um, Where was I? Uh, so you're saying it's a valuable thing to know the religious belief of our politicians. Yes. And you'd and like to know. I'd like to know. And I think it brings us back to the point where we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which was the compartmentalisation of faith and how people want to be- say that they're a 100% believer in one context, but they then they want to shy away from the actual tenets of their belief mm-hmm. in another context. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, many people are a la carte. Uh, believers. Mm. They want to believe in it and when they're in church they believe in creationism but when they're in society at large they don't want to admit it or either don't want to admit it or don't believe in Mm. it. Mm. So there's quite a spectrum of belief uh, but it's just nice to know as a starting point what somebody says their religion is and then recognising that okay there could be somewhere on the spectrum. Um, And just because they are religious is not the problem. It's just invariably they're not secular to go with it. But somebody like Daniel Andrews in Victoria is really leading the way in a person who's got a religious faith of a Christian, but he's really passed some quite strong secular laws. So Yes, I, I think that that's something that we should, like when you were mentioning before about the religious beliefs of the person in Perth who was pre-selected, yep. I think we shouldn't be too quick to pass judgment on those people to say that they're not going to be secular, given the example of Daniel Andrews and also the example of the opposite, Julia Gillard, who was atheist and then gave everything away to the um, religious groups. Yeah. It's not conclusive, but it's a worthwhile starting point just to know. (laughs) It really is. Mm. Um, Yeah. But it's entirely legitimate for the public to to be informed exactly what they believe. I mean, the point made... Point you made about climate change is extremely pertinent, yeah. isn't it? The hard part is is getting the information. So we've spent a lot of time scouring the internet on these people to try and find newspaper articles or other things 
And um, sometimes it's easy, you know, Tony Abbott or Erica Betts or something like that, but there's a lot of no-name senators and Labor Party minor sort of backbenchers who literally there is nothing on them on the internet at all. No. Uh, so we, uh, in the lead-up to the next election, are basically looking at the electorates where we know, you know, if it's a certainty, we're going to tr- we're going to ring the person and try and find out what their religion is, like ring their office. And if it's a seat where it's sort of marginal, then we'll we'll ring both of the major candidates beforehand to try and find out because, you know, we've sent questionnaires out and they just don't get answered mm-hmm. and you really have to ask the direct question. And I don't know how we're going to go with just even a phone call, a direct phone call, because the staff members will, you know, take the message. And I think here's what I think will happen, Hugh, is that we're going to need people who are actually uh, – in the particular electorates that we're interested in. Because if you are like you and I are in the electorate of Ryan and we ring up and say, I'm um, one of your potential voters, Um, I want to speak to the uh, candidate um, or have a meeting, we'll get one. But if we're from outside the electorate, our chances of having any attention paid to us are pretty small. So, yeah. So, dear listener, we'll be calling for people to help us out and if you live in an obscure electorate, you might be able to help us by ringing up on our behalf and getting the information for us. So, mm. I don't think it's a huge issue because I don't think you're going to find many fundamentalist Christians are going to refuse to say that they're a Christian. The reason yeah. that, re- that they're in politics is to espouse their beliefs. Mm. So if they're not admitting it, it's probably because they're a little bit more sympathetic to the secular cause than to their religious cause. So I think that's a good thing. Mm. But the next one thing I was going to raise, which is sort of some somewhat related to this, is that here we've got an award-winning podcast. Mm. We've got the we've got um, the, the ABC. You've, you've got you know three talented people plus me around the table talking about these issues, and, <laughs> and then you've got the ABC that doesn't have a single secular program on it mm. i think all listeners of this program should be lobbying the abc that this podcast really should be on radio national it should be a it should be a secular or a uh, you know it should be a, a radio show that goes uh, national this is what uh, the abc is crying out for we've got 30 percent of australia that's non-religious and we really don't have any voices out there to ask these questions of the politicians <laughs> And so break some of these taboos. The three of us. Cue the Ida Buttrose song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, if, if maybe we should be writing to Ida and uh, telling her about the podcast. Send her a, send her a, a file. I think oh, all I, listeners should be, you know, get up campaign, Facebook donations, get it happen. I said to Philip, I wrote to Philip Adams a couple of years ago saying, you know, what, what would you have to do to get a secular-style program up, and he just wrote back saying, not a chance in hell, forget about it. Oh, did he, really? Really? Mm. Yeah. That's was that when there was a – that the CEO in those days was a strong Christian there? I don't know. It was probably it was probably about three years ago now. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, Hugh, you've got a theory, oh, which, gosh, which is the impossibility of nothingness. Yes, I thought I thought we should get onto that before you drink any more red wine. So. Yes, you, you've watched me dispose of half a bottle here. 
in short order. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I I thought coming here tonight, I better give you a bit of a scoop. Right. And so this is a this is probably not only an Australian exclusive or world exclusive. This is a universal exclusive wow. here. Wow. So this is a bit of a this I is my ideas about how we know that uh, metaphysically there is almost certainly no God and no creator God. Almost, okay, so I'm gonna certainly. I'm gonna make the argument, and you guys you can be writing notes. Is you, is no, this, you're not going to need the, notes. But if you uh, if you get a PowerPoint to go with this, it sounds like it's going to be complicated. No, I've just lost it all. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> the impossibility of nothingness disappeared into nothingness. <laughs> So, okay, we'll start with a couple of statements. That Are we allowed to interrupt along the way? Or would you rather sort of run through your, your spiel and then we'll, then we'll discuss? Yeah, maybe give me two minutes to ramble okay. and then feel free to start jumping in. Good. Okay. Um, okay. So most of us would accept that, say, existence and non-existence or to be or not to be, they're opposites. Mm-hmm. Do you guys accept that as a premise? I do, of, yeah. of life forms? Is that what we're saying? Like alive or dead? Or are we talking about just... Well, existence uh, and non-existence. Right, existence okay. and non-existence. Okay. It's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Why is there something rather than nothing? Mm. So this is the answer to that question. Right. So is something and nothing, are they opposed, opposites? Intuitively, I'd say yes. Okay. But <clears throat> stranger things have happened. All right. Okay. Well, what yeah. I'm going to say is that... Um, Parmenides, ancient Greek uh, philosopher, famously said that from nothing, nothing comes. Mm-hmm. And so that then was used to inspire arguments that um, the universe must be eternal. But then it was used to inspire arguments that, um, therefore, since there is an existence, it must have been put into place by an invisible uh, deity. Mm-hmm. Okay. What my argument is, is, is nothingness... A coherent concept. Can anyone give me an example of nothingness or something that can be reduced to nothing? No, because the only example I can give you is obviously of something. The opposite of something. Yeah. So is it really the opposite of something then? Nothingness? Yeah. Well, nothingness probably doesn't exist because you've got to have something. Well, as as an abstract concept, if we... If words have meaning, we would say it has, it has meaning. The word, the word has, been, has a meaning. The word has a meaning. But if we consider, all right, so let's consider: <clears throat> could there have been a state of nothingness out of which uh, the universe arose? And have we got any evidence to suggest that that's the case, or are we just making an anthropo- anthropomorphic assumption that nothing is the um, the starting point or the default situation. And what what I'm saying is that that's just an assumption. We don't know that. And furthermore, we don't have any evidence of anything in existence that can be reduced to absolute nothing. It's things change into something else. So from my perspective, there's no evidence at, at all to suggest that there is anything called nothingness. So that's premise one. There is no evidence of nothingness. Can I ask a question? Well, is a vacuum nothing? No, because a vacuum has a field. So a field of space-time exists in a vacuum. But there are no molecules of any sort in a vacuum? 
yeah, but you've still got a field of space-time. It still exists within space, within the known universe. So the that that space is something, is yes. what you're saying. Yes. Right. Okay, but I could say that what it, if, I've, if I've got a vacuum and a you know flask in a laboratory, I could say that there's nothing in there because I've yes, sucked it it's, all out. It's a relative concept. So you're saying, yeah. uh, I would agree that you can say that nothing is the absence of something that was there. So, for instance, yes. you can say it's it's an anthropomorphic concept in, in the sense that we know that ourselves, we won't always be here. Mm. Uh, Hugh Harrison, Trevor Bell, our identity will cease after we, after we live. So, therefore, we strongly identify that with the concept that there's an end and that, we, and that we're not going to exist and also that before we existed you know, we we were nothing, we didn't exist. However, that's a quite a different thing from a, an observation on reality as to whether do, there do could ever play, be a state of nothing. Do you want me to play devil's advocate or not? Yeah, but let me get to my let me get to my next point and, oh, okay. and then ask it. All right. So let's say we accept premise one that we no one has identified a state of nothing. There is no state of nothing that we can say exists by the evidence. Or we can accept for the sake of argument before we move on, and then you question my premises. Okay. That for the purpose of argument... Okay, for the purposes of moving on, let's we, say We yes. can't accept that. Let's that. see where that takes us. So premises, premise two, we shouldn't believe anything on the absence of evidence. Hitchens razor, what can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. I, I, I reckon everyone, you guys will agree with that. Yep. 100%. Absolutely. Yep. So given there's no evidence of nothingness, given that we shouldn't believe in something based on no evidence, therefore we should assume that existence is a primary concept, a fundamental in itself, and that nothingness is not a state that ever could have existed, and so therefore there doesn't need to be a creator God. QED, let's end this whole religion thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. Well, do you, do you need to even do that, though? Can't you just say... I have no idea how the universe started, but for the moment, I've got nothing to, no good reason to believe that a god was responsible. So, couldn't we just say that and be? And doesn't that sound um, more sort of uh, acceptable approach? Because, I, uh, yeah, because let's face it, these sort of abstract concepts would have stumped Einstein to some extent. Like, So isn't it just easier for people to say that? No, because I think the objection to my argument would be, well, the Big Bang proves that um, there was a start to existence and that's what um, religious people would generally argue, that, oh, the Big Bang, therefore... But, there, the, but the Big Bang does not actually suggest there was, some, there was nothing before something. No, but the Big Bang doesn't prove God. So, no, it doesn't. So they can't say that. No, but I if you can, if you can, if you can suggest logically that there is no state of nothingness, that uh, God can create the universe out of ex nihilo, as as is uh, the theology, then you have stumped them before they even begin. And logically, it seems to make sense to me that the concept of nothingness is incoherent. There's no evidence for it. It doesn't make logical sense. But, okay. Therefore, it's a powerful argument. Okay. Well, so you said there was no evidence for nothingness. Yep. But we know a vacuum 
Yeah, but it that vacuum it's is, not the same as that, nothingness. That, that, that vacuum is not nothing because it's, 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 a, it's a, you can see it because it's there it's, in a it's, it's, it's fine tube. It's in a spatial field. Mm. Yeah. So this was the criticism of Lawrence Krauss's book, Something from Nothing, in that right. he said that uh, – Quantum mechanics means that um, things can come out of a vacuum. But then people have said, well, a vacuum is not nothing. Right. I once went to a lecture by Paul Davies some years ago where he was describing the big, the big Bang and he talked about something called a singularity, which was the beginning of everything, the beginning of space-time. And I have to say, I mean, with my puny human brain, I find that really a concept that's hard to grasp. And I'm with you on this, Hugh, that it's hard to imagine something came from nothing, even a singularity, whatever that is. I find it hard to, to understand what the concept of a singularity actually means. It's the beginning of everything. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like... The beginning an, of space-time. Yeah. But why does, it, why does it start, you know? Why does the Big Bang start? Yeah, I'm and not arguing for the existence of God whatsoever. No, but, but, but couldn't we just say that in this particular moment of human evolution and scientific knowledge, we that, don't know that, that we're just like a a puppy dog trying to work out pretty much. string theory. Like mm. we, we, we're so far away from that sort of knowledge that it's beyond us completely. So I think that's also what the argument says. All it's saying is that based on those premises. We shouldn't believe that there's a creator. Right. Which is consistent with what we're saying. It's it's just saying that there's no justification to believe that mm. at the beginning of everything there was a state of nothing. Yeah. That's a concept that seems so natural for us to believe, so intuitive, that there must have been nothing and then someone created something. No, but well, hey, you're, been something you're just quoting the Bible, aren't you, in the beginning? Well, am I, is that not intuitive? No, no. I, I don't think so because the Bible was clearly written by men. Yes. I, I think that the whole... The concept of God is so anthropomorphic that to me it's, it's what I call the bleeding obvious is that the whole idea of God is a human creation because we, we're projecting something that resembles ourselves. Yes, I agree with that too, 100%. I agree Why with are you that. looking at me like that? I don't know, I yeah. I mean, seriously, you know, my, my fairly rudimentary study of anthropology where I, I read a lot of stuff by anthropologists about religions of the world, you know, it seems to me it's just, you know, primitive people a long time ago saying, oh, my God, what's that, that noisy stuff coming from the sky? There must be something, somebody up there throwing stuff at us. You know, mm. it's, you know it's pretty damn obvious it's all anthropomorphic it's all projection of ourselves on to the canvas of nature mm. but i'm with you, know, you but i'm I I'm, I'm with you on i i find it hard to grasp that the universe came from absolutely nothing can, absolutely can, can nothing. I so i've got paul i do not have you trevor i'm not sure where scott's sitting on this this point. Can I have a PowerPoint presentation next time? <laughs> I, I really needed to take notes. That I, had a, I was all set to object and then you moved on to part B and I can't remember what part A was that I wanted to object to. I didn't want to hear it. It was probably going to be good. <laughs> so this is your own theory, Hugh? Yeah, well, yeah, it has been written about by a lot of other people. Though. Right, okay. The impossibility of nothingness, therefore... I will what? share some articles with you that you can okay. put in the... 
Okay, I've I've got it here in the show notes. The heading: the impossibility of nothingness with Hughes' theory. That's all. So, I've got do you find that convincing? No, I, you don't. You don't find that convincing. No, oh I, I think it's all. So you think the universe arose out of nothing? You can imagine no, a state of nothing. I, I just say I don't know. That's the convincing argument: is I just don't know. So why believe in something that isn't proven? That's true, but that's also what I'm saying. So I'm, what I'm saying is you shouldn't believe in a state of nothing that the universe arose out of. Take God out of the, the, the equation here, all right? I so j- just, so okay. what I'm saying is that there's no justification for belief in a state of nothing and then the but, universe but arose out a, of it. I don't have a belief in a state of nothing. I'm not saying that you do, but what I'm saying is that everyone mm-hmm. posits it as the metaphysical question, why is there something rather than nothing? That's a well-founded metaphysical question to which it's 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 uh, understood that there's no right answer. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So what how I'm saying. How did it all? How come it's all here? Why is why is existence? And yeah. so it answers the question in saying there cannot be anything else. Existence is the um, is the fact. It's the um, primary brute fact. So there has to be mm. a brute fact at the bottom of everything. There has right. to be something that must be right. Right. Okay. Religionists say that that's God. What I'm saying is that existence itself must exist. Mm-hmm. There is nothing else. Mm-hmm. Exist nothingness is not the opposite of existence. I, I get you on one level, but just, <laughs> you don't. Just, you're, just, just, you're not convinced, just, but you're not sure why. I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some quantum physicist in a thousand years' time can prove that there is, in fact, a thing called nothingness and somehow out of nothingness something happens. I have no idea how, but it just it doesn't strike me as impossible. Like, who knows how these things operate? We're, we're completely so far from knowing this sort of stuff that anything's True. possible. True, but so, it's not a knowledge claim. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's saying we shouldn't assume nothingness. Yeah, but it is a knowledge claim saying there is no such thing as nothingness. That's what my belief is, yeah. but I'm, what the argument is I'm saying you shouldn't believe in nothing. Yeah. You shouldn't believe in it. Yeah. It's not the same as saying right. uh, it's impossible or that I believe that there's it's, – it's not the same as saying I know. It's saying that I believe. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right here. All right, good. Convinced, move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, dear listener, wasn't that long ago we spoke about colorism? Are you familiar with colorism, Hugh Harris? No. You'll, do you have, ever to listen? Ex- you'll, you'll have to explain do you, do you this to ever, me. Do you ever I listen to this podcast? Do you ever go onto our website? Do you, I do. do you, what, what are you smoking I, or drinking I, I, when I, you're I, listening? Because I ask you this stuff and you've got no recollection of the things that we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have unlimited hours to listen to the podcast, you know but what I you do can listen do, to Hugh. it quite often. You know what you can do? You can put a speaker under your pillow when you go to sleep, like <laughs> the, the Homer Simpson method. That's it. Yes. Colorism is uh, this phenomenon where where black people, well, black men had a preference for black women who were not quite so black, who had a slightly lighter colour of black mm. and a preference for a, a, a more caramel colour of black, mm. if you like. Caramel. And there were, there were reasons for that that we discussed. Is this ringing any bells for you? I know it's a crucially important topic and I've obviously missed something. Okay. I'm not we sure spoke, how it's controversial. We spoke about it a few <clears throat> weeks ago mm. and um, listeners of this podcast who actually pay attention 
are actually ahead of the game because during the w- past week they would have seen an article about an upcoming sort of uh, movie biopic about the father of Serena and Venus Williams. Right. So they're going to make a movie about him. And and if I told you that they've um, there's reports that Will Smith is going to play the part of of the Serena and Venus Williams' father. What would you say to that? I'm tempted to say he's not the blackest person on the planet. Not black enough. But yeah. do you know, you know, what on the, on the tonal scale, what tone is uh, Venus and Serena's father? How I, dark is he? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Well, dear listener, it's taken us a while in a roundabout fashion to get to this, but essentially people are up in arms and complaining that Will Smith is going to play the father of Serena and Venus Williams. He doesn't and, look like him. And he is not black enough. He doesn't look like him, but is it, but is it relevant? Well, of course, surely. <coughs> what are we going to – well, okay. I, th- I think it's relevant. What are we going to do? Are we going to go through and say we've got to find someone that looks exactly like the old man? You're never going to find anyone like that. Oh, but, there are a few around. Bill Cosby. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? He looks quite like it. Let me play. <laughs> I don't think he's getting the gig. <laughs> Let me play a little bit of Jonathan Pye. Will Smith's casting as the Williams sisters' dad in a biopic of the tennis superstars has drawn criticism of colorism, which discriminates against dark-skinned people in favor of those with lighter skin from the same race. D- hang on, hang on, hang on. Where's Bill Cosby when you need him? <laughs> That's my first question. Sorry. I'm just, I'm, look, maybe, maybe I'm just a little bit too white to get this. Right, so, but let me get this straight. His casting's been criticised because he has the wrong colour skin. Sorry, the wrong shade. He's the wrong shade of brown. I mean, that, that sounds like something Alf Garnet would say, not a social justice warrior. Yeah, is, is this honestly how movies are going to be cast? From now on, not by judging talent or box office bankability, but by simply getting some colour charts out until you get the right match. He goes on. I, I think I think if Pi put an argument about the uh, the theory of nothingness, I, I might agree with him. He's a convincing guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, did, I didn't like it. I didn't like him at all. You don't see. So, so you actually think that this is a legitimate thing that, that no. Will Smith's not I think black enough? A, no, I think it's a manufactured controversy on both sides. Right. I, I think if you say you're getting the actor who's going to play Freddie Mercury in Queen, they got someone who looks like him who can act like him, and the closer to him, the better. And I think the same about any other character. But I don't think it's a, it's something that you'd want to be getting upset with on a rights issue, like a racial rights, sexual rights issue. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand the anger of the other side, but then I'm not familiar with the person who was talking there, mm-hmm. but I think the the anger... And the outrage that was coming out of him was just as bad as what you see on the other side. That's part of his stick. That's that's part of what he does. So, yeah, mm. fair enough. Have you guys heard about the the hipster effect? I think I've heard about. Is is this is this the uh, argument about nonconformists mm-hmm. who manage to somehow all look exactly the same? Yes, that's yes, it. I, I've experienced this in real life. Have you? Yeah, in uh, I take my kids to soccer, and uh, our soccer team last year had dads who were all hipsters, 
they all had beanies, they all had sunglasses and beards, right. and you couldn't tell one from the other. <laughs> Do they? Have- <laughs> you, you, I couldn't remember. The, I, I didn't know what to address people as because uh, some of them had the same name even, and yeah. they looked identical. Did they have earrings and tattoos? <laughs> No, no earrings, no. no tattoos. They weren't. They were more your uh, your forties, early forties, late thirties, right. hipster type right. dude or, or, who's an engineer in the city. Right, right. Or <laughs> or if they were younger, they would be baristas at West End. Yes, or something. correct. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is this we're a counterintuitive phenomenon in which people who oppose mainstream culture all end up looking the same. Mm. So um, uh, so there was an article about this and. Um, and in the article, they included a, a picture from Getty Images of a bearded, flannel-wearing man tinted with a blue and orange hue. Um, <laughs> and this guy wrote in and said, your lack of basic journalistic ethics in both the manner in which you reported this uncredited nonsense and the slanderous, unnecessary use of my picture without permission demands a response. And I am, of course, pursuing legal action. So he was angry at this stupid theory and the fact that they used his picture <laughs> walking in the street without his permission. Wow. And the people who wrote the article, um, you know, they're worried about it. And so they wrote to Getty Images and said, look, we've got this really angry guy here. Did he, did he sign a consent form for this? Because we've used your image and don't you get consents from the models and that? And they said... Well, the name of that guy and the name of the model are different. And so they wrote back to the guy who complained and said, the model in the photo is not the same name as you. And he went, oh, well, it's not me. <laughs> it was another guy. <laughs> it was exactly like him. <laughs> <laughs> sort of shoots his argument. In the foot a exactly. Bit, I said, we don't think this is you. And he said, oh, I guess you're right. It's not. <laughs> Funny about that. How, how would you know one, you know, first grade rugby league player from another these days? They all look the same. <laughs> That's true. Uh, there we go. Um, Venezuela, Hugh. Oh, here we go. I'm in you, trouble. You, go. I've, here's, my, here's what I say about Venezuela. And you tell me where you disagree is, okay, sure, they've made mistakes, right? A lot of mistakes. <laughs> All right, sure. Yeah, sure, okay. But yes, mildly. the US has no business being involved in regime change and what they have done to confiscate the Venezuelan assets in America and to effectively set up a financial siege around Venezuela where they can't sell their oil to anyone except China and the Russians um, and uh, is effectively um, putting pressure on the Venezuelan government. It's just none of their business. So they should stay out of it. They should give the money back to Venezuela. Uh, Sure, there's been corruption, mismanagement, but that is a small country with... Uh, huge reserves of oil, and they could get themselves out of any mess if they're just allowed to, but the okay. US is not allowing them to. All right. Let me state where, because Trevor and I know, know we disagree with each other on this issue, mm. and the reason I disagree is primarily driven by the fact that I listened to a um, late-night in-depth analysis of the whole Venezuelan crisis way before 
Barack Obama opposed economic sanctions on Venezuela. Before he imposed them, yep. Yeah, so mm-hmm. Barack Obama opposed mm. them. But before that, there was it was already a uh, disaster brewing. Mm-hmm. And the disaster is, is basically because of their um, mismanagement of the country and the economy and the government's, um, what is it, anarcho-socialism, Noam Chomsky-inspired... Um, Outlook, where they, where they, where corruption has taken over, and hang on, they, what's, hang on, what's socialism got to do with corruption? Well, nothing directly, but mm. it, it seems to have resulted in corruption, or it seems to have but, resulted. Why is there a connection between socialism and corruption? Because Norway, Australia, I mean, we're a socialist country in the sense that we've got high welfare and. Everyone's shaking, everyone's shaking their head if people, so, if listeners are... So are, are, socialism is a spectrum. True. So, so where is the, the, the spending in Venezuela on social, you know, welfare, given their oil reserves, is a drop in the ocean? Yeah, but it was the government's... Um, <clears throat> I think the thing with socialism and uh, communism and those regimes is that they place too much power in too few people they're not relying on any market forces to direct the economy and uh, people make mistakes and that seems to have been what is, what's happened in Venezuela. I don't know it in exceptional detail, but I know that it was a basket case well before the Americans got involved. And I'm willing to concede, if it's your point, that America has acted uh, inappropriately and probably America has acted in its own best interest. No mm. doubt about that. I don't think anyone has a problem with Australia acting in its own best interest in its foreign policy, and I don't think anyone should have a problem with America acting in its own best interest. It doesn't need to be the United Nations. I, I, so, I, I so, tend to disagree with you. I think if the Americans acting in their own best interest is at the expense of another nation, I think then they you can actually call them to hold them to account over that. So it's, I think you it's, can criticise them, yes, but I, I don't think you can you reasonably expect I, them not I, to. Okay, so they confiscated all of the Venezuelan assets in bank accounts in America. That's, that's okay? And why did they do that? Because they don't like Venezuela. Because they claim that... It's a lever. Okay, they claim, they claim that Maduro is an illegitimate um, president and that by allowing the money to go back to Venezuela, it finds its way to Maduro and not to the people, and so they've confiscated it. Do you think that's okay? Do you think it's okay for the Americans to place sanctions on... It's um, my is, question is, first. Is it, well, no, I'm, I am. Mm. Is it okay for America to place sanctions on any country? This isn't a sanction. They stole their money. They've, they've taken the assets out of the bank and said, you can't have your own money back. This is Venezuelan money in US bank accounts, and they've said, you can't, you can't have it. There's, yeah, there's, well, I, think that's, I don't think that's the, reasonable. But well, I, that's what they've done. I so, think it is reasonable so, to, to place sanctions where, where you've got a dictatorship but, that is not but, transferring power and the people are starving. But, but and that's the case but, in hang Venezuela. Hang on, a dictatorship? He won the election. Yes, when? So... A year ago, less than a year. Was it legitimate? Yes. We can't be completely sure of that. There is no. I think we can. It was as it was. Venezuela has a history of legitimate elections. The election prior to that, the Carter Foundation, who go in and look at elections independently, 
said, this is one of the best elections we've ever seen. In fact, it's better than a US election mm. because of the corruption in the US system. The Venezuelan election was better. So they've got a history. Chavez won election after election and people like the Carter Foundation said, these elections are perfectly legitimate. And the last election, that article that I've got a link to, John Pilger said, he spoke to people on the ground. There was no issue with the election. John Pilger's not a very reliable guy. You can't can't rely on anything John Pilger says. But but you can't rely on anything the Americans say. I think you can. No, no, you can't. I don't don't think you want to take... For a start. You don't want to take the... You think you can rely on what the Americans say? No, but I don't think you can take the the Glenn Greenwald intercept view and swallow it whole. That's what I'm saying. And I I think that's what appears to be happening here in some respects. You don't want to view the US as the big, nasty, neo-capitalist enemy because I think their behaviour in terms of Venezuela is they're trying to bring regime change because clearly here is a country in crisis. It's been brought on by its own uh, mismanagement of the economy. And that's clear. Can you just do one point at a time so I can interrupt on all these? (laughs) No, you you, you, you talk most of the time. You've got to let me finish. But you're rapid fire with about six different (laughs) fallacies, (laughs) Hugh Harris. You're you're rapid fire on six fallacies. All right, well, go go on then. Dispute dispute those. I'd just like to take you up on the... um, Regime change, yes. Is it, you know, there's a quote from the article. Remember when the US wanted to overthrow the Israeli government for not letting desperately needed humanitarian relief into Gaza or for firing tear gas and live bullets at protesters? Is this a Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald article? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Is it a Glenn, Glenn Greenwald article? Is it from The Intercept? That's just giving it an analogy. Like, yeah. that's just saying... You know, if if this is legitimate, where does the where do we stop with the U.S. intervention and re- regime change? Is I what it's, it's saying. I think it's a very difficult but, issue. The but, issue I was going to say before is when you don't when you've got a very uh, impotent uh, United Nations and we and the the world relies on the U.S. intervening when you've got a uh, dictatorship in Afghanistan that would be a nuclear risk to the world or North Korea. Just, what do you do? Can, you can, know, can, is, is there a right or wrong can, here? I don't think there's a right or wrong. Can we have a? Can we agree that the US has a history of regime change in Latin America? Yes, it's got a disastrous history of getting of, involved of, in international wars. Of, of almost every country in Latin America, at some point or other in the last fifty years, the Americans have intervened and actively worked to overthrow governments to install. Quite often right-wing dictators who they preferred over possible socialist. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. So, so Vietnam, can we say Nicaragua? So can we say that they've got a history of doing that? But can we also say <laughs> that true. in some of them, notably Chile, uh, Brazil, and uh, probably Argentina, they have evolved back into something resembling a democracy, whereas the countries that America doesn't or can't intervene in, like Iran, <laughs> North Korea, they are absolutely beyond can, the pale can, can we just deal, dictatorship. Can we just deal with Latin America in one pretty much but homogenous you're, culture You're, you're damning America and, you, and you're coughing up idiots like John Pilger as, as, as verification. I mean, Trevor, you have to do better than that, really. No, no I don't. John Pilger is, has built a career on criticising all the liberal democracies of the world, Did, and taking a very, very, you know, 
uncritical look at the communist dictatorships have to, have of the to world. Agree. He, well, John Pilger is terribly biased. He's did, terribly, very, very terribly much like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept. Did, did you see the picture of the aid truck on fire? Here we go. Yes. And so I, I saw right. several media reports yep. that Venice, the Venezuelan government blocked the aid coming in. Yes. And I know that you're going to dispute that. So two things. Yeah. Those pictures of the bridge yes. with the blockading of the bridge, right, mm-hmm. were used to demonstrate the Maduro government stopping aid coming into the country. Yeah. That bridge had never been opened. There's a bridge down the road where traffic's flowing freely. So the Guardian's, so, Guardian's report was Venezuelan troops block a bridge to stop aid from Colombia, 6th of February. Yep. Then you've Is got the, the picture then of the bridge? You, then, yeah, the yep. bridge. Then you've got uh, The Economist. Venezuela's dictator vows to block de- deliveries of American aid. So just sticking to the bridge for the moment, right? can I just say that bridge was never opened and that bridge was used as propaganda to show Maduro stopping the entry of aid. Now, when it comes to aid, the Red Cross... Who said that? It's, it's documented where... They've taken, well, the Venezuelan government for start and anybody... I don't trust what they say. Well... They're incompetent. Uh, it's been was documented it, was it Glenn, whether... Was it Glenn Greenwald who said this? I can't remember who it was, but they basically looked at Google images of the bridge over the last three years. It's never been open. That's not in dispute. Well, the New York Times is saying Maduro closes Venezuela's border with Brazil to blockade. Okay. So can we just start with the bridge, though, and the picture of the blockade? So that particular bridge was used as propaganda while there was a, a bridge down the road open. Yeah. Now, when it comes to aid, Maduro is stopping US aid into the country. But the Red Cross and international bodies who are responsible for providing aid agree with him and say the US should not be trying to provide aid directly. They should be giving it to people like the Red Cross and letting them do it. So the international organisations responsible for providing aid are telling the US, this is not your role, give us the aid and we will deliver it. Because what's happening in the past in places like um, Guatemala and um, Abrahams, who was convicted of lying to Congress, his modus operandi was to transport weapons for rebels under the guise of foreign aid. He's convicted of that. It's not fanciful nonsense. He's, that's what he did. So, you, so are you suggesting so the, that the US was trying to uh, stage a coup by providing aid to Venezuela? Because what they do is they fly all their planes into Colombia under the guise of this is our aid coming in. In fact, it's all weapons ready to be used by the rebels. Mm. When you've got the Red Cross and other organisations saying give us the aid and we will deliver it. But the US says, no, we want to deliver it because they want a confrontation at the border. They want an excuse to create conflict so they can use military force. It sounds, but, a but, bit, but, it sounds like a, a little bit no, like... No, let but, me just, but, just, but let me just let me finish to what you're saying. The, the irony of this is we're talking about aid of, what, $20 million worth of aid. 
they've confiscated billions of dollars of Venezuelan cash in US bank accounts. Like, it's just ridiculous for the US to say, oh, we're trying to help the poor Venezuelans by giving them some aid. Yeah, Meanwhile, I, I, think, I think that sounds like confiscated such a that's cynical... It but, sounds like but, such but a cynical Chomskyan view. No, but the cynicism I, 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 is to I, I, I confiscate billions of dollars and offer millions of dollars in aid. Why can't the US simply give it to the Red Cross and say, feed the people of Venezuela? I, don't, I can't answer that, but it does sound a little bit like um, Chomskyan conspiracies. And this is what but, Chomsky... But, but Chomsky, Chomsky, Chomsky that this, insisted that, that the Pol Pot regime wasn't killing anyone. But you've already admitted there's a history of US intervention in Latin America. You've yeah, already admitted fine. it's not it's not fanciful to say this it goes on it's, all it's, the time. It, 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 no, it isn't. But it, I, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think you assume that it happens in every case, but, but, and but, I don't no. think you assume that Barack Obama but, was interested in toppling the Venezuelan regime. But uh, he put sanctions on Venezuela for good reason. What were those? Because was, they're doing the wrong thing. What were they doing? They're starving their people. No, they're not starving their people. It's a corrupt regime. They're corrupt. It's a corrupt since, regime. Look, since Maduro look, look, came in, the military, look, the military generals have gotten into the business, you know, and just like look, in Cuba. The people mm. of Venezuela it's a elected regime. this mob. It's a corrupt regime. The people of Venezuela elected this mob. Yeah. It's up to the people of Venezuela to get rid of them. It's not up to the US to it's interfere a, it's in other now countries. It's a dictatorship. It is. They just had an election six months ago when he was elected. Yeah, That's not a dictatorship. Not only the that. Soviet yeah, Union has you, you elections too. Call, no, you can't call it a dictatorship. I, I have a friend, Trevor, who's also interested in foreign policy, who sends me articles all the time. He sent, and he's he's quite sympathetic to Russia, by the way. He sent me some 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 news uh, articles from various foreign policy mags that uh, plane loads of Russian mercenaries have flown to Venezuela to to offer personal protection. To of course they have. Maduro. Of course they have. Just in case the Venezuelan be, military decide they don't want him be, anymore. Because so. the US siege of Venezuela means it's like Cuba all over again. Cuba did not want to just hook up with the Russians. You don't but think? No. They begged to do trade with the US, but the US said, no, we're imposing sanctions and we're telling all of our allies to impose sanctions. Yeah. So the only people left were the Russians. Yeah. So what, what, does Scott think, what does Scott think of this? That's what I want to know. <laughs> the, the election was in. In, no, I've got a foot in both camps because the election was clearly fair. You know, that was fair. It was, it was ranked by Carter's mm. agency and all that sort of stuff saying it was fair. I think the election failed because the opposition boycotted it, whereas if the opposition had actually got involved in it, I don't think he would have won the numbers of votes that he did win. I think they would have actually had it reduced. Why, why are there s- literally hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans in other Latin American countries now who have fled in the last oh, because few the, years? Because we'll get back exactly. to that. Exactly. Scott, we'll get- Scott's only put one foot down. He's got one in each camp. Let's yeah. hear the other foot. <laughs> well, the other foot is that it's clearly a, an incompetent government that has been running the place because they had... They had all the money and all that sort of stuff flowing and when oil price... Don't talk to me yet. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> you can't sit there and say and say when you've got the oil price riding high and then have all this money flowing that you then just don't use that. You then don't create some sort of buffer for when the oil price falls. 
you know, clearly what they did was they pissed all their money up against the wall rather than creating a buffer and that type of thing. And it was all gone. They didn't piss it on a wall. They put it in a US bank account and the US stole it. That's yeah. rubbish. No, That's they, not they, rubbish. They, they stole it years after they've no, been in poverty. No, they, they have, no, they, their economy no, collapsed no, years ago. No, no. It didn't collapse it's, last year it's, it's not, and it didn't collapse because the US took their money. What, that's what, that's not right. I what, also, I also, and I doubt no, it's all in American right. bank the, accounts. The, the, there is billions of dollars that the US has just confiscated yeah, in the last sure, six Sure, months. there was, because they're a basket case and they're trying to affect regime. A basket regime. case with billions of dollars in a US bank account. And, and, How does that work? Yeah, but see, that's the whole point. I mean, this if, is, this if is, you gave them their money back, they'd be fine. Trevor, Trevor do you imagine... They wouldn't be fine. The, the well, billions of dollars go a long way. Do you well, imagine, why don't they spend their billions of dollars They can't get it. The US stole it. Yeah, but why didn't they get it beforehand then? Well, they, while all of their people are dying. Because it's being used to, because they're selling petrol to American um, motorists and the, they're conducting a business. That's how they're making money is they're selling their, their so, oil okay, to so American motorists right. and well, the US confiscated their money. So therefore it was never money that was going to go back to aid Venezuela anyway. Yes, it is. In, yes, it is. No, it wouldn't. Why not? It it's their money. Up, it, it would have ended up back in there because they, 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 all those oil if, companies if, are owned if, by the government. If you were running Venezuela at the moment, you'd say, give me the billions of dollars that I actually own and I can, I can feed running, all the people in the world. There's not that many of them. But that's assuming they would use it for the right purposes. This is an oil-rich company. Oil-rich country, yes. which is a basket case. It's, it's oil-rich you know and its, it's basket population case? is completely poor. You know about the oil price? Yeah, I know the oil Change. price fell, but, yeah. Yeah, but still, so, so, it's still oil rich. Yeah, so, but that's the it, whole point. I mean, the oil price fell, and they should have been they should have created indeed. a buffer for when the oil price fall because what goes up does come down. And it's in. up to the Venezuelan people to say, "You dickheads, you should have accounted Absolutely. for this." Absolutely, and we're going to vote you and out. And that's why I but said, but it's not like, up to the U.S. government to say, exactly. "You dickheads, you didn't account for." Um, yeah, I this, agree. How and we're taking your money off. I agree. That's fair enough. But I think, I think the. Anger should be reserved for the corrupt government. The US, it's doubtful. It's doubtful. I don't know whether they're trying to do the right thing or whether they're trying to do the wrong thing. I, I am dubious of people who say that the US is an evil empire that has yeah, that, yeah. That, that has a, that has a personality <laughs> like a. Uh, don't treat a country like a person, like the way that Noam Chomsky That's talks right. about the US. Donald Trump is not America. No, he's not America. I don't think Barack Obama would have wanted to do the wrong thing. I think that whatever he would have done, he would have tried to do the right thing. I think Donald Trump, who knows what he would do. You don't think this is Chile all over again? No. But I, don't, I just don't think the US empire is a person, and I, don't, I think you, we're personifying you, you, it. You, you, I, honestly, you, I honestly believe that you, the US you, should back away from this You don't think this is Chile change. all over again? What you makes think you the, think it is? Well, why are they picking the basket? It's an overthrow economy? of a Latin American country. By the US government. For what? For what? Because they don't like the socialist government and they want their own companies to go in. In the case of Chile, it was copper. In the case of Venezuela, it's oil. They want their companies to be able to go in and, and make money. They've declared it. They've said once we've got rid of these characters, but our companies Chile, can go in and make money. In Chile, it was right wing generals of the Chilean military who they who installed. Over, who are, well, they who, were already there. No, they, it was the US government provided them with the means to do it. And they were already generals of the Chilean government. Now, but, 
The, uh, you know, indeed. Do you imagine the opposition leader in Venezuela is a right-wing fanatic who's going to, you know, round up thousands of people and put them in a, you know, in a football stadium and murder them? Well, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, this guy has no legitimacy at all. Like they, our country as no, well. No, he's a member of the our Senate, country as well of the opposition in the in the. Mm, in I'm the, not in sure. Yeah, he, he doesn't. Guaido's got no legitimacy at all. He's an elected no. politician, he, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, he's just a politician exactly. who said, "I'm now the president." Exactly, which makes no sense he's, whatsoever. He's got he, no he, legitimacy, and that's why I agree with Trevor. I don't think he's got any legitimacy, and that's where I think that the Yanks have got it wrong when they're trying to force regime change. Just said, I'm not oh. saying the ranks, the Yanks have got it all right, but I, I certainly don't think it's another Chile. No, I agree well, with you. What, I don't think difference? it's another Chile. Either. What's the, the difference? The difference is in Chile, the, the right-wing military saw the elected left-wing uh, president as a threat to, you know, to the country, so they killed him and then they rounded up thousands of people that they thought were communist sympathisers and uh, murdered them. Yeah, but, with an, but the point of America's involvement was... The same, in the sense that they aided and abetted the military. In this case, the military appears to be on Maduro's side because they're they're reaping the benefits. They're, okay. they're enjoying part of the you know the corruption. So, but it was an overthrow of a government that they didn't like. In very different ways, though. You know, in very different ways. I don't see it. This is a dangerous any, process. If we're just going to say it's okay for America to wander around the okay world. it's okay for America. But you I, are saying it's no, okay no, no, for no, America to wander around okay. the world and just exercise regime change in small countries. Not entirely. To, to set up a financial siege and to bully them into submission. Mm. You're if just they, saying if, that's... I think if they're going to do it... the I, democracy I of, a, okay. of a small country. No, I don't think it's okay. But I think if it's okay anywhere, it's okay in Venezuela. <laughs> What about North Korea? If, if and in North Korea, it's okay in North Korea and it's okay in certain, uh, certain uh, Arab states where the people are completely uh, yeah. in, living in Be- poverty and have no rights. every time America goes in, it's also always so much better afterwards. It's not. Isn't it? But that's it, not necessarily America's fault. It's always so much fault. better. They always fix it, don't they? No, they don't. But they, it's not necessarily America's fault. It. The world is a lot more complicated than but, that. Well, but w- w- I'm you, saying if you had a United Nations that would, that, would, that, but, that would be able to resolve these issues, then it would be good. But do you just let the, do you just let mm. ham, the, the whole population of Venezuela start? You let, is that what you have you, you let the population of Venezuela benefit from the billions of dollars of money in in the US bank account that belongs to Venezuela and the government can buy whatever it wants to feed the people. But that's like saying that economic sanctions are never justified. No, there's a difference between an economic sanction where you say country A says, I refuse to allow country B to to trade with us. Hmm. But it's a completely different matter for country A to say, yeah, the money and assets and property you've already got here, it's ours now until we're happy with what goes on in your country and then we'll give it back. Mm. That's, that's completely different and that's what's happening here. Have they, have they, they actually confiscated said it? it. Yes, well, they but, haven't but exactly. Still, they've they've the, said we're freezing the assets. They've said you cannot withdraw it. They, 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 they haven't, haven't, they haven't taken it. Exactly. But the point is Venezuela could do all sorts of things with that money and they can't. So... Sure, I have some friends who are Venezuelan and but, but, they have a very, very but dim with view all due of respect, Maduro. I met a Venezuelan as well just during the week because mm-hmm. I was at a function and this guy was talking and he clearly had some accent. I said, oh, what's, the, you know, what's your cultural background? He said, 
Venezuelan. I said, oh, fantastic. Mm. Let's talk about Venezuela. Mm. And um, his father was an engineer that worked for the Petro Company. Mm. And when Chavez, um, uh, well, his version of the story was that in the election, um, the um, the Chavez government had an election where you were fingerprinted when you voted and that was ostensibly to avoid voter fraud. And he said, well, that actually allowed the government to identify who had voted for who yeah. and then sacked all of the people who voted against them. That was his argument. I said to him, but wasn't it also the case at that time that the management of the Petro Company went on strike? This wasn't where the workers went on strike. It was the management told the workers, <laughs> we're closing down. He said... Yeah, that did happen. So I said, well, so maybe it was all the people in management who said, we're closing down the Petro company and they got sacked for that. He said, well, that's one argument. So, you know, where does the truth lie in all these things? Who knows? But the point is you have to allow a sovereign country to conduct its own affairs. You can't steal their money when it's in your possession and let the Venezuelan people, they're smart people, let them vote out this character in three years' time or whatever. This is a country that's got prospects because it's got so much oil. Just let them do it and they can oil their way out of trouble. But they've oiled their way into deep, deep, deep trouble, even given they've got vast reserves of oil. That's that's what's so shocking and scandalous and disgraceful about the whole episode. But even with all of their mismanagement and corruption, a country of of 30 million people, uh, 20 million people with that amount of oil can make all the mistakes in the world and get away with it if they've actually got access to their money. That's because their money's been stolen. No, it isn't. It It was a disaster before that. Their money has been stolen by the US. It was a disaster 10 years ago. If they were allowed access to their billions... How how much more can I say it? If they were allowed access to the billions of dollars that they actually own, they would not have a problem. You don't don't, accept that. No, but you don't know that. Yes, I do. You're just saying that, that it was a disaster 10 years ago. They had access to those billions then. Let's do a thought experiment. Why wasn't it? Why wouldn't it? Let's do a thought experiment. Let's assume that there's $3 billion worth of Venezuelan money in a US bank account. $3 billion. Yeah. That's not very much. Let's let's assume there's $3 billion in a US bank account that has been confiscated off. No, it's been frozen. Frozen. Yep. Do you agree? Well have been confiscated. Do, do you agree that a country that is then, if that money is transferred back to Venezuela, that with three billion dollars they could solve all of the food shortages that a country of twenty million people has? I think the answer to that question is why haven't they, when they did have access to that three billion dollars? No, can let me finish because they never knew it was going to be stolen. No, that's not their problem. Their problem is economic problem. corruption and economic mismanagement. And the reason that the money has been frozen is because of that. It's because their people are starving because they've, they've stuffed up and they continue to, they won't, they won't change. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> we're, we're, now we're going we're, in we're circles. Gonna, I honestly believe that the Yanks should pull away from it. I think they should unfreeze the accounts. It's got to my side. Well, yeah, and only oh, I don't, partially. I, I don't think so. I think I, on agree, my I, I, agree, I agree with Scott and I agree with you, Trevor, oh. in the sense that the Americans' behaviour, it's dubious as to whether they're doing the right thing. I agree with that. But what I'm saying is that it's, it's a fact that the Venezuelans' problem is their own fault. 
it's not caused by the US. Absolutely. That's, that's the key point. Yeah, and that so, is the whole so, point. So There's, confiscating all of their assets does not cause a problem. It wasn't all their it assets. It causes a problem, Trevor. but they already all had of their a, American they assets. Had a, they well, yeah, a problem but that's before not that. certainly not all When their 95% assets. of their income is from oil and the major trading partner is America mm-hmm. and they've got petro company they took that, service stations was, littered throughout America and all of that is frozen and you say that America has not is is such an insignificant role? It's not insignificant, insignificant, but that was one year ago, and, and we're talking their problem's been, you know, going on for 10 years or more. Yeah, and you can't tell me that the whole um, – because there, there was an article that you were referring to a couple of weeks ago where they were saying that the the offshore oil rigs are in a state of disrepair. You can't mm. get into a state of disrepair in only 12 months. They've got to have worked into that sort of state of disrepair over a decade or more. Yeah, they have, they have systematically destroyed their own economy by their own mismanagement. So when any country mismanages their economy... No, that does not give the Yanks the licence to go what, in and invade. What, what, and in what thing. circumstances, then, can the US um, do a Venezuela on a country? If, if it mismanages its economy, when... I At think, what point is, are the Americans allowed to do what they've just done? I, I think that's an un- unanswerable question. Yeah, well, I, I don't think you can answer that I question. don't think there's a right or wrong. Well, then, I'm, then you can't say that's right or wrong with, with, with Venezuela. Yeah, that's no, right. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, I don't think it's – I can't say whether it's right or wrong. Really? I, You're I, saying the Americans are right to do it. <laughs> not necessarily. I'm saying that they potentially could be right. I'm saying I don't really know, but I, I think the, the main point is that the Venezuelans have brought it on themselves. Mm. And we – we shouldn't be so trusting of this um, socialist policies that always end in disaster. Can, we should be more questioning yeah. of those. You, you, you're far too can, can, assuming that they're going to fix it, Trevor. You seem to be look, no, assuming no, that if no, the Americans no, 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 unfroze no, 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 their money, yeah, that's true. They're these not going corrupt to. Uh, look, here's what I'm saying. People, it, it would not surprise. Look, if you released the money, here's what would happen: they would. Uh, buy a whole bunch of um, food and aid and their economy for the next 40 years would still bounce around in chaos. No, that's, that's, chaos, total that's chaos. Un, that's untrue but, because they've been denying but, there's any economic crisis for 10 years. Yes. So they won't do anything about it because they're in denial. They are. That's when, why they're when blocking they, they, they they would would distribute the oil peanuts when did to the, the poor people. When, when did know? the oil price drop? Was it 10 years ago? It was 2010, something like that. Because <clears throat> it's only since the oil price dropped that they've had an issue. Well, it's nearly Until then, they were fine. They weren't fine. They were still they were straight, no, starting no, to struggle. They, they were fine. No. Like, as Look, fine as any Latin American country. But you still, How are they now? My, How are they going now? Well, who knows? <laughs> they are not going well. But who They're knows? They're a complete and you utter cannot believe, case. You cannot believe the press because the press said that the Maduro government bombed and firebombed the aid trucks. And video evidence has come out that categorically proves that that's wrong. And MSNBC came out and said, whoops, sorry, yeah, but look, it go- was the opposition forces. But that's forces. just a couple of trucks. But, but We're talking the, about te- you know, years this, of mismanagement. But this is the point. Yeah. Theft. You can't trust the information. 
that's coming out. The Venezuelan government themselves are the thieves. They have been stealing money from their own people. No doubt, absolutely. No doubt. But it's absolutely. up to the Venezuelan people to fix that, not America. Yeah. Well, oh, well, I accept that point. I do too. Why don't, why, why, why don't we, right. we end on a point of agreement on that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably get closer to agreement on that than we will on the theory of nothing, I'd say. Well, that was, that was a good heated discussion. It that was, was really yes. good. You've got one more? No, could we have a break for a minute? Right, dear listener, Hugh Harris has um, recharged his batteries. We're back and um, we're really enjoying our fired-up conversation. And, okay, we went around in circles a little bit there, but it's still good fun. Um, Beer sponsors, Scott. Okay, thank you very much to the beer sponsors. Was the initial beer sponsor, followed by Wayno, Landon Hardbottom, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, and then tonight we are drinking I. Gage, was it? Gage Road? Yeah. I've got a little Dove, New World Pale Ale. Yeah. It's something from the Institute of Public Affairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An IPA from the Institute of Public Affairs. <laughs> yeah. They could make a lot of money if they, if they were to do a, a beer. Yeah. And that was also from Landon also. Good on you, Sinner, Landon. Thanks, Sinner Landon. Sent mm. beers for Christmas. So thank you very much, Landon. Quick thank you to the, to the uh, patrons, Sean, um, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Palais, Matic Man, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Karen, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aiden, uh, the guys who want to avoid Patreon, uh, Dean, Ken, Was, The Beneficiary, and David. Thank you very much. Uh, dear listener, we subscribe to a lot of things. Uh, we've got the website, we've got hosting of the MP3 files, we've got an APRA music license, so I can play some music for you, which I will at the end be playing something from Shelley Seagal, The Holy Man, which will be played in honour of George Pell. So uh, <laughs> there'll be if you So Shelley Seagal is an Australian who's living in America and she um, basically sings a lot of songs of of promoting sort of atheism, if you like. Does and she? she was on um, Matt Delahunty's program and uh, reached out to her and she said, sure, promote the song and there'll be some links to her website and other stuff where if you like to the idea of pro-secular anti-religious APRA. songs I actually um, have a family member I think works for APRA in right. Sydney yeah okay in the office so so we can shout play out this to my family mm. members who work in APRA mm. so we are playing the music on this podcast legitimately dear listener by paying a license fee we also subscribe to The Guardian, which has got um, – is that okay, Hugh? No, good articles about Venezuela. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Crikey. I'm actually really enjoying Crikey. It's it's quite good. You so, like uh, Guy Rundle, yeah? Just just generally, I think they're on the ball with a lot of things that are going on with this crazy government. Uh, Medium, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald, Courier Mail, Sunday Paper, a couple of other software programs. So, dear listener, uh, that list of um, patrons – just covers our expenses at the moment. <laughs> so, can I ask you a question? What what uh, online journals do you find in, in, enlightening you? Uh, I tend to, I guess, I read um, what's it called? A Aon. Yes. Oh yeah. A E O N. A O N. I like um, long philosophical mm. articles, the sort of stuff I was carrying on about yeah. about nothingness, which is obviously not everyone's cup of tea. Quillette, I think, have sometimes really 
really thought-provoking articles. I agree. And sometimes things that are a little bit too right-wing for my tastes. It's got a very right-wing flavour, Quillette. It's very Jordan Peterson-ish. Um, Some of it is. I don't know about but, Jordan Peterson. But, it, yeah. look, it's it's certainly not left-wing. And, and, and they have a lot of articles critical of the left. Yeah. So, but I find them thought-provoking, well-written and often, I think, spot on. Yeah, I like that. I like... Um, uh, Brendan O'Neill from Spiked. Me too. You know who funds him? Yeah, we know. Do you? I don't know, no. Coke Brothers. Look. Does that make a difference? That, you should assume that's the totality of the funding of Spiked. They have accepted money from the Koch brothers for a certain uh, enterprise that they conducted in the US. But I like Spike because they challenge the orthodoxy of yeah. any kind. And Only I, when I it think comes I, to free speech. Yeah. No, it's not only free speech. They challenge a lot of shit. But free speech and things like uh, gender identity issues. Yeah. So the things where the left is wrong, Anything they are correct. PC they will challenge. Yeah. Yes. So I'll give them Which that. Which I think is good. But for goodness sake, Brendan O'Neill had Tony Abbott on his podcast a couple of weeks ago and just waxed lyrical with how wonderful Tony Abbott's views were about the world. Like, seriously, Spiked is right-wing and so is Quillette, unfortunately. Very, mm, I, I very, don't agree with Quillette. I think yeah. Spiked, it is and it isn't. It's mm. also quite secular. Yeah, yeah give them that, but it's, it's on the right wing economically. And the Guardian's is way on the left wing, right? Yeah. Sure. The Guardian's way left wing. I, really I love is. the Guardian, the writing in it's yep. awesome. Yep. And yep. don't you pick the and choose yeah. because, yeah. I mean, I look at the Guardian and I, I find some articles that have certainly have merit and I find a lot that's complete rubbish. Yeah. And uh, the same with anything. I mean, I don't think we should be evaluating who we read yeah. on the basis of whether we think they're right wing or left wing. I oh, think, but we no. should keep it in mind when we're reading it and saying, okay, where am I as I'm reading this? Ah, okay, I'm in The Guardian. Yes, this, but you're, this will you're, have a bias. You're a well-educated, smart guy, Trevor, yeah, but and, and you can read stuff and yeah. make up your own mind about it, whether you agree with it or not. That, you're not going. You're not going to say I'm not going to read it because somebody said it's right wing, or I'm not going to read it because someone said it's left wing. That that's true. But I'm well. I'm I'm saying this for the dear listener who's listening to your suggestions, and I'm saying, okay, as for that suggestion, here's my comment. <laughs> but also, who would you recommend they read then? Ah, well, I just I just gave a list of ones that I thought were good. Um, uh, or who we subscribe to. Well, crikey. The Saturday papers I like too. Yeah. 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 Um, so at the moment I'm quite enjoying Crikey and uh, Miranda Saturday Devine paper. on the, the Daily Telegraph. So must read. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually using a, an RSS feed reader called Inno Reader, and it basically subscribes to. I subscribe to dozens of blogs and news websites and it puts it all in one place for me to go through really quickly and so that's working really well, So, which includes things like Ken and Malik. Oh, well, actually, the king of kings at the moment would be John Menadue's blog. Like, yeah, really, very good. Yeah. most of our best articles that have some real academic content on Australian issues would come from... The John Menager blog, I would mm. say, mm. is probably the best. So, yeah, um, yeah that's the highlight at the moment. But you cast your net fairly wide, Very don't wide. you, yeah. surely? And so we, we are looking healthy. at left and right wing, but mm. I'm just sort of 
I'm, it's, I'm thinking of Woz because, you know, he's – we've just got to alert people to the right-wing stuff out there where they may not realise it. And knowing that yeah, the Koch brothers' funds spiked is an important piece of knowledge. <sighs> That's why we want to know yeah. who, who funds our political parties well, because it's important to know. We know that Rupert Murdoch is, owns the Australian. Yes, and so we take it on board. And yet so you, the Australian publishes some material that's worth reading. I think. Yeah. Correct, but you you'll you just take it on board as you're reading it. You know, okay, I will be wary of yeah. of I'm, this. I'm also this. wary of people, and as you know, I post material on a certain website, and I honestly. You know, you get these people who come on and say, oh, I wouldn't read that. That's by, you know, such and such a website, mm. which is so right wing. You know, yeah. I mean, that is not a reason not to read things. Well, I wouldn't read, I wouldn't go to Breitbart, for example. Like, so, no. I mean, you can get to an extreme where you think, right, this is just too far. What about something like um, New Matilda? I used mm-hmm. to read it. Me too, and, years and, ago. And now, and now, I, and now know, I find it so biased. So left-wing and, and so tunnel vision, yeah. social justice warrior. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. So, yes, I mean, with all these things, it's just we need to know what the leanings are and take it on board as you read it. Yeah. And it's nice to know the leaning before you start reading it because... Yeah, mm, it's worth yeah, knowing. Yeah. Yes, that's True. my point. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's find another topic where we might disagree. You were going to bash me on one particular issue about you know the what? rationalist society. I'm not going to bother. Unless okay. you want to, do you want to? Mm, not really, but if you want to, I'm happy no, to. No, no. I, I, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I noted with interest that the rationalists sort of had a bit of a thing on their Facebook page. Um, here it was. Hey, ABC, Radio National. Enough already with the religious programs. Where are the interviews with humanists, rationalists, sceptics, atheists and secularists? A third of Australia's consciously, a third of Australians consciously identify as having no religion. Where are the programs for us? Absolutely. And my thought at the time when I read it was, yes. well, why doesn't the rationalists promote this podcast more regularly? Because... Okay, you're on this time and you're a board member, so of course, next newsletter is going to have, oh, check out the podcast cues on it. And, um, you know, the occasional one where we've done directly on one topic of religious freedom, for example, might get promoted in the newsletter. But otherwise, no, it's not a regular thing. Meanwhile, somewhat like the religion... The Law and Religion blog yes. is by a character who's very, very pro-religion and he provides legal advice about what's going on and he gives a very pro-theist view of the world. Yes. And any time he lobs Any, lobs anything. anything he does, it will appear on that newsletter. <laughs> True. So I sort of thought, well, maybe it's partly my fault because I don't write to the rationalists and say, hey, I've done a really good podcast, maybe you should you know, promote it. But I'm sure that guy doesn't ring and say, hey, I've done a really good podcast, <laughs> a really good blog, maybe you should run it. No. So, um, so you know, uh, rationalist, secularist organisations out there, um, how about just supporting each other? <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, I'm going to chime in in support of that and that's mm. one of my bu- big bugbears with, with, honestly, the whole movement 
Mm. from the the disagreement between the atheist foundation the humanist the national secular lobby the this podcast the rationalist society of australia the prop the problem with our groups is that we are not we're not sufficiently uh what's the word for it uh we're not sufficiently machiavellian to use a an un, a, unfortunate word to recognise our overall best interest in the same way that perhaps religious lobby groups are and religious lobby groups who in previous centuries were killing each other over minor points of doctrine really know how to know how to compromise and know how to support each other and and get on with it look at all the anglican groups in you know coming out in defense of pell and all of that sort of thing whereas in our it really does baffle me is why we don't support each other enough Mm. And I tend to I tend to agree with you. You you know that I share your mm. podcasts, you know, whether I'm on it or not. And um I think I think we should be sharing it. But on the other hand, Meredith does the Meredith Doig, the president of the Rationalist, she does the uh the daily update. Mm. It's up to her what she puts on it. Yep. I do think that the Law and Religion blog is useful for us to read, particularly if we're involved in the media because he probably provides some of the best arguments against our positions and it's useful to know what they are. Mm. At this point, I figure any member of the Rationalists has probably heard about the podcast at some point and has checked us out and decided whether to listen or not. So I really, I don't care. At that point where I don't care because <laughs> I reckon they would have probably <laughs> have had a chance to sample us and stay or not stay by but now. But the point so. you're making is we should be more ecumenical in a sense, shouldn't mm. we? I mean, as religionists are. Mm. I mean, even, you know, Jews and Christians and Muslims sometimes support each other just because they know that they're on basically the same side. Yeah. You know, they're they on do. the side of supporting, you know, nonsensical supernaturalist dogma. Yeah. And we're not and we're the enemy. And yeah. yet... You know, we're, we're, I mean, the old, th- the old adage about hurting, hurting cats. Yeah. You know, getting atheists to, you know, to agree on the same thing. Mm. But we should be somehow networking and, and supporting, you know, the general cause of dispelling that sort of supernaturalist rubbish. Mm. I think there is something in all of us, though, that we're, we're critical thinkers and we're inclined to be critical of each other, of each other mm. and of the views that people put forth. That's why we're sceptics mm. and often non-believers in things. Mm. But therefore, it makes us harder to support each other on mm. areas where we disagree. Mm. I even notice when sometimes the rationalists promote a certain position. You might remember recently a couple of positions we promoted where you were vociferous in your criticism of us. Mm. Why were we coming out with that mm. that position? For instance, one of them was about... What was it about? It was about it was where, if schools where, 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 are self if, if, if schools, schools funded are not funded by government, then they should be allowed to discriminate. Yeah, mm. whereas yeah, and mm. uh, that's an issue where you wanted to challenge me on that, and mm. you know I'm quite happy to debate that. Mm. It's a similar issue to hospitals if they're funded yeah. by the government. They 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 have a the government the government funding gives them an onus to behave in a certain way. Yeah, but you know. Well, on that level, though, I wasn't. Um, I was just disagreeing with that particular position. So, yeah. um, and I was highlighting, "Hey, everybody, this is what the rationalists think." I disagree with it. Here's my reasons. So, yeah. Um, so, 
I think it, that's it, fair it, enough, and yeah. I don't have a problem with you doing mm. that. But I kind of raise it as an example of that. Yeah. That's we sometimes degree, disagree over minor points of mm. an issue, mm. and I find with the rationalists when we we're often approached by different groups like the atheists mm. or humanists, or we're, we're promoting a particular thing, will you chime in and support us? Mm. And then we find it difficult to support them when they're saying something like that mm. that we might disagree with slightly, but overall we agree with the basic message. Yeah, yeah. I saw the atheists, Australian atheists on their Facebook page had a thing just recently where they, oh, now let me, I have to find it, hang on. Uh, so, yeah, the Australian atheists put a post up, Andrew Rawlings did, saying the Australian atheist group is not intended to have policies but on this occasion, how do members feel about a policy against the Catholic Church forcing their religious beliefs on public hospitals that they control? This was in relation to the abortion thing. So yes. I thought that was interesting that the atheists just normally don't have a policy on things like that. Well, um, I think it'd be interesting to open up the discussion on what people mm. think of the Atheist yeah. Foundation of Australia because I find it mm. the most softest. This is Australian atheists? Is that them? Same yeah. group? Okay. Is Australian atheists the Atheist Foundation of Australia? I don't know. See, I, I reached out to Andrew Rawlings and said, Andrew, come on the podcast. He said, oh, no, it's not really my sort of thing. So in fairness to myself, I did reach out and say, you're welcome to come on the podcast and tell me about this policy and yeah. what's going on. But it's actually hard to get people to come on. Like, do you know what? I really don't want, in some sense, I don't want more atheist, secularist, rationalists on. I'd rather have theists on, but yes. getting them on is not only possible. I don't know how many times I've reached out to John Dixon and said, please come on and just talk yes. on whatever topic you want to, but just talk and can't get him to. You can't so, get him to. No. no. So, I think the Australian atheists, Andrew Rawlings, is different than the Atheist right. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. Here's what I would like all groups to work towards here. This is my theory on where we should, what we should be doing yes. is if we really want to affect change in this country, we should be identifying junior politicians, the backbenchers, who, um, who might be uh, sympathetic to our point of view and we should be making contact with them and saying, anytime you need information about Sort these sorts of issues and you need ammunition and facts and figures and arguments, we're here for you. And we should be meeting with, we should be identifying who are those pro-secular junior politicians now and maybe in 15 years' time one of them will be Prime Minister. Yeah. And one of them might be a Daniel Andrews and you only need the leader to be sympathetic and all sorts of shit can happen. Yeah. And we should be, and that's what Was and I are going to do as part of this, our secular index, is try and find out, well, who's religious and who's not, and try and identify who is a potential champion for the secularism cause amongst the batch of junior politicians and try and reach out and get in their ear and offer them arguments so that in 10 years' time when they're actually a senior cabinet minister, they've got, we've got some ongoing contact with them. That's what groups like the Rationalists, the National Secular Lobby, atheists, everyone like us should be doing. That's what we I should reckon. be doing. We need to be, mm. we need to have people who are in Canberra lobbying. We yep. really need to be able to get at least one of the major yeah. parties alongside 
uh, us. And I yep. think the Labor Party is the strongest yep. chance of that. Yep. And we should be identifying those people and meeting them in the electorate and yep. and and offering whatever we can. Agree. Well, there's a task for us yep. to work on. Um, just quickly, um, one other topic that we might disagree on. <laughs> um, Not again. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren in America, um, Democrat, wants to break up big tech companies. So she says they're just getting too big and I think she's right. I think they are getting too big and she wants to break them up into smaller parts so they have to compete against each other. So um, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I have to... Say so I have a lot of sympathy for that idea because you've got <clears throat> global companies like Amazon, Google, who have more power than whole countries, mm-hmm. and yeah, I can't. They don't pay tax in Australia, and uh, it, it's it's changed changed the world in a way that was unanticipated by a lot of people. So I think some sort of regulation wouldn't be. I wouldn't class that as rank socialism. Or mm. Here's a socialist concept for you. Yeah, she's also suggested a wealth tax. So she has suggested, um, and this is the brainchild of University of California Berkeley economists Emmanuel Sayers and Gabrielle Zuckman, who would impose an annual 2% tax on households worth more than $50 million and a 3% tax on ones worth more than a billion dollars. What do you think of that, Hugh, as a socialist concept? It doesn't sound too unreasonable, does it? Is that a percentage of their wealth or is that a percentage of their income? Of their wealth. Their wealth. Yes. A 2% tax on their whole wealth. Yes. Yeah, oh, no, they, their whole income would be – if it's a tax, it has to be on their annual income. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. What? It's got to be on the income, not, not based on what their wealth is. Yeah. Okay, somebody like Jeff so Bezos. Before, after t- after a hundred years, you'd be, you know. Or- can, can I just give you an example? Someone like Jeff Bezos has virtually hardly any income because it's all in the assets of Amazon, which is a capital asset that continues to grow. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's if you, you tax just income, he you, will not be taxed. But you tax the income of Amazon, the company itself, rather than him, the shareholder. Well, so you, you, so you don't have a so you don't agree with taxing somebody based on their assets? No, I don't. And you? you I thought, I'm looking for points of disagreement here. What? Uh, uh, I, Are you going to come I, over I think, the socialist side with me, the dark side? What I would say is I'm not, a, I'm not knowledgeable enough in tax law and in, in economics <laughs> to say the best way, but I think in principle – that someone worth fifty million, fifty yes, fifty million or more yeah. than one billion should be giving at least two percent of their annual income, however you derive it. No, I'm not talking about income. I'm talking yeah, about but, uh, no, no, yeah, so how often? How often have they got to give their wealth oh, then? Every year, yeah. based so on. So it's their, got to be annual then. Yeah, but not on income. It's how much it's do you? How much wealth, do you own this year? I own fifty million dollars. Okay, we'll have two percent. Thank you. So yeah. in fifty years, he's got nothing. No, because, well, are you suggesting that somebody with $50 million uh, doesn't uh, earn 2% on that money every year? Yeah, no, but he also loses on that money. And once they drop bet- below $50 million, they don't pay any. 
I think I agree in principle with what you're saying, that they should be able to give something. I just don't know how you yeah. work out. So if they have such incredibly huge assets, yeah. there must be a, a formula you can, you can apply to to, to, yeah, to get them to pay a, a reasonable contribution to the running of the country. Yeah, and, but that's yeah, why I honestly exactly. believe you should only levy that on the income, not on their assets. But people can hide income. That's yeah. right, and we that's part of the problem, before, isn't it? But the yeah. income that you can hide and all that sort of stuff, it still has to settle on you at some stage. But, but when it settles no, it on doesn't. you, it does have to Jeff settle Bezos on you. Bezos will never pay tax well, on the basis. Okay, Bezos is going to... Build up his company and that sort of thing. His company will then be worth a billion dollars, or be more than a billion dollars, but when he dies, which means he then gets captured in the inheritance tax. Okay. What if Scott, if you did it both ways, but the the asset one was really small. So if you took money from the annual income, yeah, a certain small percentage, but then you took an even smaller percentage of their overall asset base. Yeah, see, I'm still very uncomfortable with that. Because so I if do you think can I have do. a mechanism where if they have amazingly uh, incredible assets. You have a mechanism where they're obliged to pay to pay some sort of tariff mm. on just holding the, all those assets. Yes, yes. That, because it, everyone would assume they're making an income from the assets. Well, that's what well, that's what the and assumption they, would be. If they try to hide them, well, you'll say, "Well, I'm sorry, but you know, we know that you must be making something from it." So here's a, a an extra sort of yeah, like a like a Medicare levy that we pay. You know, Gina Reinhart has $1.48 billion in assets. So compared to Jeff Bezos, she, she's she, a bit of a pauper. <laughs> these people don't – this is the, th- the concept that we have to get across, is that Jeff Bezos, Gina Reinhart, Harry Triggerbuff, Anthony Pratt, Frank Lowy, they don't earn these things in isolation from society. It is because of the existence of society and the rest of us that these things happen. Yeah, absolutely, so, but I don't think you. I don't think you can levy tax on it on assets. You I can if you, you want to. Well, you could if you wanted to, but I just don't well, think. What's it's the right. worst that would happen? Would Gina? What would Regina Reinhart do? Oh, she'd fund the IPA even more than what she does to complain about it. I suppose. I did a little experiment. So, dear listener, there's a tab on the website which she, she would declare herself a citizen of another country, and therefore you couldn't get her. go. Go. Yeah, like, then, if we're not getting the tax anyway, go. Then, then, I don't care. Then you just tax the assets that are left behind in I, Australia because she can't take her or deposit overseas with her. Go. But yeah. I've got a link for the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax in Australia. And so I managed to find statistics for the 50 wealthiest Australians and the amount that they have in their assets. And if we were to apply the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax in Australia, the... Uh, it would be more than this figure, slightly, but uh, somewhere around $3.2 billion. Scott, three quarters of a submarine per annum. It's, it's, it's not a lot. It's not it? a lot of money. No. It's not a lot of money. I understand that, but I just, I, I just have a problem with taxing assets, that's all. Well, yeah, um, yeah, we, we, that's fine. You know, we'll disagree on that. Yeah. But yeah. You were happy with an inheritance tax. Absolutely. I was very well, happy it's with a tax an inheritance. On inher- on in the, no, it's not a tax on inheritance because you've inherited it's something that wasn't yours in the first place. You've inherited it from your old man. So, you know, I honestly believe that that should be taxed. So anyway, you, you kind of warm on that socialist proposition uh, that I've just put forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm Yeah. 
pretty happy with that. I reckon we're running out of gas. Hugh's running out of red wine. His wife's <laughs> probably ringing and saying, where the hell are you? So in the interest of uh, the continuance of Hugh's marriage, uh, we better pull it up. Dear listener, um, look, we went around in all sorts of circles. It got, it got animated, but it was great fun. So thanks, Hugh, for coming on board. And if you're allowed out again at some stage... <laughs> Ever, happy to come ever back. again. You're very welcome to come back. <laughs> All right, dear listener, uh, we'll take it out with a bit of uh, Shelley Seagal and The Holy Man. So enjoy that and click on some links and buy her records or subscribe under Patreon and stuff like that. Okay, thanks for everything, for listening, and bye for now. See you later. Thanks very much for listening. Bye now. See you, everyone. Who is the holy man and what does he We must cover up our bodies We must show humility I believe my body is beautiful And it belongs to me What makes a holy man? What does he decree? There is an order to this place And he's atop the hierarchy I believe there's no one above me And no one underneath But I'm a sinner, I'm a whore I'm rotten to the core And you're the holy man Well, it's to you that he confides You have God on your side And you're the holy man Yeah, you're the holy man The holy man, he's calling for our souls That we must kneel, beg forgiveness Like it's something that we owe I believe our only stipulation Is the kindness that we show But I'm a sinner, I'm a whore I'm rotten to the core And you're the holy man Well, it's to you that he confides. You have God on your side, and you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy man. I'm a sinner, I'm a whore, I'm rotten to the core, and you're the holy man. Well, it's to you that he confides, you have God on your side, and you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and 
search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.